Amen. Anybody come to worship the name of Jesus? I need you to actually do it. Does anybody come to worship the name? That name that's above all other names. Amen. I love gathering together because, you know, we get an opportunity when we gather together to not just sing about the praises of Jesus Christ, but preach about the praises of Jesus Christ and and think about the excellency of Jesus Christ. And I know some of you, maybe you're in here, you don't know Jesus. And you're like, man, why are they worshiping this guy that is not here? Uh, because he's done so much for us and brought us from such a, they used to say back in the day, he brought me from a mighty long way. Amen. So we serve and worship Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm so, so eager to preach the word. Why don't you grab your Bibles and run to Genesis chapter 6. Man, there's a couple people. I'm just, I'm happy to see all of y'all, but it's good to see Mixie back in the house. Amen. She's been all over the world, but it's good to have her back. Also to see Sherelle and Tosin with us. All the way from London. Amen. It's good to see y'all. Well, listen, as you're turning there, um, as Gabe said, today is the the Sunday that we get to announce the totals from our Commitment Sunday. Let me kind of lay this out real quick because uh, I I know that there's some new faces in here. So when we're talking about a campaign and Commitment Sunday, you might not know what we're talking about. At the beginning of this year, the Lord began to really press on our hearts that we needed to make uh, a strategic move as a church to find a larger location. Uh, We are in three services in this small space and it's not just this room that becomes crowded, but our kids' rooms as well. Our infant, we have an infant room and we have uh, a, a kids' room, and it just becomes more and more difficult to manage the room when it's so small. And so we've been praying about a bigger space, but we realized one of the things we were doing wrong in the beginning of this year was, was we were looking at spaces but didn't have the resources available. And so even if we saw something that they were interested to negotiate, we were like, well, let us go and try to put our pennies together. Uh, And so we thought it would be a good idea for God's people in this house to raise the resources. And so we we tried to be really, really clear biblically and lay a a strong foundation. So we did a five-week sermon series on on generosity and stewardship and giving. And then we tried to make as much information available to you about this campaign. So what we did was we put out a brochure and we put out a fact sheet and we invited you guys to something called Dream Night. And you can come and you can ask all the questions that you wanted to about the campaign and accountability and resources and, and how long we're going to be in this space. All the questions, we spent at least an hour and a half just answering questions. And last Sunday really was like the kickoff for us, what we call Commitment Sunday. Commitment Sunday was the Sunday that we said, man, let's kick this thing off well. And everybody, let's just bring all of our resources together and try to give a large offering to kick off the, 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 the campaign. But also, we wanted you to come with commitment cards. So if y'all were here, y'all remember we had box, boxes up here, we had boxes in the back because we wanted you to give visibly and we wanted you to commit visibly. And, and so today I want to announce the totals. Let me first tell you the goal. We were hoping to raise $300,000 in 26 months. Now let me just say this really, really quickly. Uh, the goal is not to move in 26 months. I'm hoping to move earlier. Uh, but we needed to, to have a, a set goal to raise this, uh, the resources based on some projection and uh, percentage of growth and, and your uh, current giving now. So that was the goal to raise 300000 in 26 months. So I'm uh, a little disappointed to announce that we only raised $52,000. No, I'm kidding. We actually raised, I love that, 452. Amen.
Justin, bro, I love the dramatics, bro. I love it. So you guys have committed towards the campaign and actually raised a good portion of it so far, but you guys have committed over the next 26 months that if everyone, if everyone sticks to what they wrote on that commitment card, we'd be able to have that in 26 months. Amen. God is faithful. I just want to quickly remind you of a, a scripture in, in Ecclesiastes 5. I think it's verse 5 where it says, uh, do not make a, a vow to the Lord. It's better not to make a vow to the Lord than make a vow and not fulfill it. So it's important as we think about these commitment cards, it's not just some monopoly money or some stuff that you're writing down on paper, but it's actually, we're actually calling you towards generosity for the next 26 months. And I believe, you know, I, I actually believe that we'll exceed that. Uh, because when I think about stories like the little boy with the, with the two fish and the five loaves and God took that and fed thousands, I know he can multiply this. And so I, I ask that you guys just stay, stay strong, stay committed, stay faithful, and uh, we'll be able to reach this goal. But I, I'm hoping y'all are excited because I'm so excited about this goal and, and you guys committing to it. So praise God for that. All right, let's get into the word. Amen. It's like a half a clap. All right, Genesis 6. You guys got it from here? Yes? Click it again? We're good. All right, I'll leave it. All right, Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only on evil continuously. You should circle that word continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, underline this, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, I'm a little tired today, so I'm asking you guys to help me to preach. Why don't you look at your neighbor and announce the topic? Say neighbor. neighbor. Say, oh, neighbor. You are worse than you think. I know you wasn't expecting that. Amen. We, we typically jump right into praying, but, but let, let me just kind of lay my cards on the table real quick. I realize we are entering into the, the uh, Thanksgiving week, and it's a week of gratitude and being thankful. And, and I actually want to preach Psalms 100, which is the only psalm that is labeled a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, but I could not get away from this passage because I realized one of the things, the major thing that should birth gratitude and thanksgiving in your heart is for you to see how far you were from the Lord. Because in seeing how far you were from the Lord, you get to see how deep his love and his grace goes to meet you. I, I love the, the line in, in the song that we were just sing, singing, uh, the line that just said, I'm amazed at your love. He said, I'm amazed that you love me. And I, I don't know about you, and I, I don't know, maybe you feel like you got it all together. You dotted every uh, I, you crossed every T. Maybe that's you. But then there's another remnant in here that you realize that you were really far from the Lord. And you realize you still mess up at times. See, I need y'all to talk back to me this morning. Let's pray before we dig in. Father, this morning I'm in need of you. Every week we come together, not just every week, but every time, every service we get together we want to hear from you. So, Father, would you remove me out the way, remove distractions? I, I don't know what distractions we're thinking about. Sometimes we'd be thinking about what we left the oven on and left the iron on. And, Lord, remove all of the distractions from us today so that we can focus in on, uh, on your word. Help us to realize this morning the depth of our sin. 
But also don't let us stay there. That just leads us to despair. Help us to realize the depth of your grace. The Bible says that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So show, that, show us that today in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Let everybody say amen. amen. You are worse than you think. Uh, many of you have heard my conversion story. I've talked to many of you personally, but also corporately. I, I've shared with you that over a decade ago, the Lord saved me. And I don't know how, how you were raised. Is anybody in here that was raised in church? You were like always, you don't remember a season that you wasn't most of the room. That, that was my story. I was raised in church. Uh, and I don't re- ever remember a season of not being in church. And maybe that was that one little season, but I'll take that with me. I won't share that one with y'all. <laughs> but for, for the most part, I, all I remember was, was church. And I had a false sense of security. I genuinely, genuinely believed that I was saved because of my church attendance. So, God, you see how much I'm coming to church? You, you got to let me in. But the reality is church does not save us. And it took a friend as I was exiting uh, a church and was going into the parking lot to get into my car. And as I was heading out, a, a friend decided to share the gospel with me. And, and he began to talk to me about this, this terminology that I, I don't even know, didn't even know what it meant when he said it. But he said, you know, you're justified by faith alone in Christ. And I began to argue with him and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because it wasn't that I didn't, what I was trying to communicate to him was not that I denounced the cross. I believed in the cross, but I thought I had to help the Lord out a little bit. And so, yes, I believed in the cross, but it was also my good behavior that's going to get me accepted. It's also my, I didn't think I was that bad of a person. And that's, that's most of the people in this room. When you, you've trusted in Jesus, it wasn't just that a life of sin you were living in, but your own self-righteousness that needed to be repented of. And so as I was sitting in the, in the parking lot and he was talking to me about being justified by faith alone in Christ, he began to share with me, he opened up Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, which starts by saying, you foolish Galatians, so you know how the conversation went. He's calling me a fool is what he was saying. And in Acts 15, he took me to, and he began to show me, listen, it is impossible for you to be justified before a holy God based on your works. You needed a righteousness that is external from your own righteousness. And then I said, no, nah, well, I'm, I'm just not that bad of a person. He said, well, let me show you how bad you are. He took me to Genesis 3 and showed me inherited sin. He showed me where, where my problem was in Genesis 3. And then he took me to this passage, Genesis chapter 6. And when he took me to this passage, he began to explain to me about how deep my sin goes. And the last comment he made before we departed was, B, you're not that good of a person. And then he said, let me say it like this. You are worse than you think you are. And those words resonated with me all week. I went home and I wanted to discredit his, his, his position. And so I went home and I opened up the Bible and I began to look for scriptures to combat what he was saying to me so I can show him next week. You don't know what you're talking about. And God saved me that week. As I was looking for scriptures to discredit being justified by faith alone in Christ, God said, no, these are the scriptures that will save you. And I was met at that moment with an overwhelming feeling of um, almost despair that I couldn't save myself. But then at the same time, I had a mixed emotion rejoicing that I didn't have to save myself, but that I'm saved and justified by faith alone in Christ. And that's, that's what I want to do with our time. This week going into Thanksgiving, I want to expose to you through the scriptures that you are worse than you think you are. For some reason, some of you in here are just like I was sitting in the parking lot of that church. You think 
you, you genuinely think, it, despite the fact that you profess that you believe in Jesus Christ, your actions show that you're still trying to earn it. What I want to do today is, and, and you know what, why we do that? Most of us do that because we base our standard of goodness based on our neighbor who is not that good. So you be like, I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't have sex, me and the Lord are cool because your neighbor is doing it. But you do realize the standard for being accepted by God is not good. The standard for being accepted by God is perfection. Okay, let's just do it. Anybody in the room perfect? Okay, because if there was, I need to sit down. I need you up here. You got to talk to us about your perfection. So if none of us in this room are perfect, if we're all saying we've messed up somewhere along the line, then we're all saying we needed redemption. And the only way we can get towards redemption is by external righteousness, not our own righteousness. And here's the reality. Some of you, yeah, you need to repent of your sin, but some of you genuinely need to repent of leaning on your own good works, of leaning on your own righteousness. So you are worse than you think you are, and God's love is deeper than you think it is. In fact, let's just go ahead and jump in. Verse 5, there's something scary in the first part of verse number 5. It says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continuously. Look at the first three words, the Lord saw. Can you imagine that? The Lord actually sees your sin. What you did last night, God saw it. But and here's the scariest part of him seeing it. We can fool others and put on the self-righteous face. Y'all know, y'all raise your hand, so y'all been in church long enough that you know when to raise your hand, you know when to say amen, you know when to act like you got it all together. But in reality, if we peel back the layers, you may have us fooled, but the scripture just said, the Lord saw. And here's the scariest part about the Lord seeing. He does not just see your action. The Lord sees your intent and motive as well. See, because it's easy for us to say, ah, I got to repent of that action. But what about right action with wrong heart? What about doing the right thing with ill motives? Here's what I just read. The Bible just says that the Lord saw. And many of us think that the Lord didn't see our sin because it seemingly goes unpunished. And because you think you're getting away with it right now, you think God doesn't see it. But not so. Sin always catches up with us. Sin always has a way to get like creep up and just get us. And, and here's the crazy. Here's the scariest part about it is you can go through life and it not go punished because he's gracious. Because in reality, if he killed you the first time you sinned, this room will be empty. Okay, let me go deeper. If he killed us the first time we sinned, the kids' room would be empty. I need a parent to say amen right there. Listen, we got y'all think y'all sinners because y'all adults. Them kids? I'm just telling you. This is why you don't have to teach a kid how to bite. We don't teach our kids how to snatch the toy and say mine. We are born sinful. And so you needed, you needed a righteousness as an external. The Bible just says here that God saw. Yeah, you got everybody else fooled. God saw. And he doesn't just see action. The Bible says it looks like he's sitting up in an observation post. And as he's sitting up in an observation post, he's looking down. Y'all were here last week where we talked about how God looked down and he saw the poor and the needy. Well, that ain't all he sees. He saw what you did last night. Okay, y'all, y'all, see, y'all still got that church face on. Well, I think we got to work through that. Because, you know, it's, 
It's really easy to sin. It's hard to walk in obedience to the Lord. Why? Because it's natural. Okay, y'all, it's easy. Listen, it's so much easier. Sin is a text message away. But, but listen, to walk in obedience... It requires accountability. It requires you getting in your word. It requires prayer. But all you got to do to sin is send a text message. Why? Because it's inherited. It's natural. You're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because it's a part of who you are. You have to understand. You have to own this idea. So the Bible speaks here. The Bible says the Lord saw. This word saw, it's using what's called anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphism is this idea that we're so finite and limited in our thinking that we can't, we can't comprehend a mass of God. So he has to dumb down the language and he has to give you his full character and human characteristics. So, so let, let me give you an example of that. The Bible says in John chapter 4 verse 24 that God is a spirit. Colossians chapter 1 verse uh, 15 says that God is invisible. So God is a spirit. A spirit doesn't have a face. It doesn't have hands. It doesn't have feet. God, the Father, is a spirit. Okay, but if you read Numbers chapter 6, verse 25, it says, the Lord will make his face shine upon you. Wait a minute. He doesn't have a face. Anthropomorphic language. It's a way that he's describing himself so that you can understand who he is. If you go to Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, it says, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt. Wait a second. God is a spirit, so he doesn't have a hand. It does it two times in Psalms chapter 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ear towards their cry. It just says that God is a spirit. So how does he have eyes and ears? It's dumbing down so that you can understand who God, this massive God is. And of course, the best way we get to see who this invisible God is, is Christ. But here in this text, it says the Lord saw. What, what it's really describing is how in God's own sovereign for lack of a better word, bigness, massiveness, he decides to look down and do a human observation. He decides to look down and do an appraisal of your life. Now, when God looks down, what does he see? When God looks at, when he decides to play sneak, a, a, a peekaboo in your life, what does he see? When God decides to look at the movie of your life, what type of movie is God watching? Some of us make God sit through a horror film. Some of us make God sit through a crime film. So some of us are, are stuck in this romance comedy film thing, and God is looking down at your life. But when he looks down, what does he see? And I don't know about you, but this makes me a little uncomfortable. This makes me uncomfortable knowing that the God of the universe doesn't skip a beat when it comes to my sin, that he sees it all, that it's laid bare before him which is why repentance is so important. Let me go deeper. Yes, he sees your external sin, but he also sees the intent of your heart. Both are dealt with in this text. Look at verse 5. First external, the Lord saw the wickedness of man and that it was great on the earth. When God looked down, the first thing he sees, the first thing he saw was their behavior. The first thing he saw was their action. He was looking at the outward expression of the depravity of the heart. Do you realize that all of your sin, the action that you commit is due to the fact that you are totally depraved? Let me, like, I don't, you're not like almost depraved. 
You are totally, like Charles Spurgeon to say it this way, just as every drop of water, every drop of water in the Atlantic Ocean is tainted with salt. Every, like there, there's not a fresh water part of the Atlantic Ocean. Just as all of it is salty, every piece of you, every atom of who you are is tainted by sin. And so, because you think, man, I'm doing well. I got up this morning, I prayed early. I did devotion this week. I got accountability. And you think because you have the spiritual disciplines that sin doesn't run deep. Listen, you're worse than you think you are. It goes deeper than you think it does. So the first thing he sees when he looks down, the Bible says he saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth. Here's the scary part. He doesn't just see action. He sees the heart. The Bible then goes on to say, in every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only on evil continuously. So God doesn't just look down. This is, I don't know why y'all sitting quiet. God looks down and doesn't just see your action, but God looks down and sees what you thought. The, the, the stuff you got hidden from all of us, the stuff that your small group don't know, your DNA partner don't know, your best friend don't know, the stuff that, that your wife don't know, your husband don't know, those thoughts that roam around in your head all week, God sees them. God knows them. And this is why he's gracious, because when he sees them and knows them, he, he doesn't kill you in that moment. And he's holy and he should. The heart, he looks and he sees action. Yes, that's off. But then he looks at them and sees the heart and he says, that's off too. Listen, you don't need a bandage over your old heart. You don't need to take two pills and call the doctor in the morning. You need a brand spanking new heart. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 36 says what? He will remove the heart of stone. And he'll give you a heart of flesh. We need a brand. When my wife was, uh, she went through surgery a, a couple of weeks ago. She had two surgeries, and m- most of you know that. And, you know, after you come out of surgery, you don't come out of surgery and go right into your room. You come out of surgery, and you go into something called the recovery room. Now, when she was in the recovery room, that was when I finally got to go see her. And when I went to go see her, there was other people in this recovery room that just got out of surgery. And one lady, one older lady was, was sitting there, and, and they had to monitor everything about her, or monitor her, her breathing, monitor her, her heart. And the, the machine that they were monitoring, you could tell that, I, I don't know this for sure, but you can tell that she had some type of heart issues, and so they were monitoring it closely. When it comes, why in the world does this woman realize that our heart was sick and so she needed a physician, but yet the Bible just says that our hearts are sick and we don't think we need a physician. You need a great physician named Jesus Christ. Your heart is worse than you think it is. Pastor, you're being dramatic. You are, like, you're just exaggerating this one verse. Give me another verse about my heart, all right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. And desperately sick. Wait a minute. Did the Bible just call my heart sick? No. It called it desperately sick. Your heart is desperately sick. You need a brand new heart. In fact, there's, a, there's another verse I'd like to push to you. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Watch these seven things that come out of your heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Your heart is sick. And we're the only ones with a sick heart, but, and we want to tell God what to do with our heart. Like the woman laying there didn't say, listen, nurse, I need you to do this on my heart. No, she, was, she had to sit there and do whatever the physician said. God tells you you need a new heart. So when I read this, I realize that my thoughts 
are tainted. Even the good I do, I have to check myself and look and say, am I doing that with right motive? Am I doing that with right intention? And I need to repent of it. So God sits back. He does an evaluation. What does he see? He sees that the heart is sick. He sees our actions are wrong. But there's another word in here that lets you know how deep your sin goes. I told you to circle it. It says every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only on evil. Look at this word, continually. Notice the perpetual nature of sin. Sin, like you don't sin sometimes. Like our sin is perpetual. You think that, do you think that human, human, uh, humanity graduated from Gen- Genesis 6? Like we didn't graduate from Genesis 6. You are still, we are still in the same place where the perpetual nature of sin invades our life, which is why Paul would say stuff like, you know, the, the good that I would do, I find myself not doing. Why? why? Because evil is always around me. And I would just go so far as to say evil is not just around you, it's in you. You think you sin because of somebody else? You sin because it's in your heart. Okay, so, so verse 5 exposes us to this reality that we have a wicked heart. But verse 6 exposes us to the reality of God's heart. Look at verse 6 with me. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth. Watch this. And it grieved him to his heart. Two times heart is mentioned. The first time it's mentioned is talking about how, how desperately sick our heart is. The second time it's mentioned, it's talking about God's heart. But God's heart in the text says he was grieved. Like, imagine that. Can you imagine walking through life and actually thinking, Lord, I don't want to grieve you. And so whatever grieves you, help it to grieve me. Like, if that was your thoughts just this week alone, like my actions, Lord, how do I not grieve you on my actions? My thoughts, how do I not grieve you on my thoughts? See, we don't hold our thoughts captive. We just let our thoughts roam and we think we okay because we ain't doing it. But you're grieving God. And you know why I really like this idea of God being grieved? Because I've heard people preach Genesis 6. And I've heard people, and even Ed, when he was just talking about Genesis chapter 9, after the flood. What's interesting is, when I consider the flood, the most cataclysmic event that has happened so far, people have said that God needs anger management classes. Like, I've heard somebody say, God is angry. But when I look at this text, it was not anger that moved him to flood the earth. It was grief. It was grief over sin. It was grief over our actions. It was grief over our intentions. And so this is so deep because God, of the, the God of the universe, decided to intentionally bind his emotions to you. And he doesn't have to. He could have sat back and been cold. He could have sat back and been distant. But the fact that he's moved to grief lets us know that he cares. Let's us know that he watches and he's moved with an emotion, not just not just grief, but regret. Did you read that in the text that he regretted that he made man, which doesn't mean that God made a mistake. Genesis 131, everything he made was good. So he, he didn't make a mistake. What he's trying to show you is how he feels about your your sin. So the Bible says here that he's, he's there's a divine disappointment in verse number six. And it gets worse because then there's verse number seven. Verse number seven shows God's pouring out his wrath. Look at verse seven with me. Y'all still with me? Verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Here's, see, the reason I don't 
get nervous about the wrath of God. Verse 7 is God's wrath. Verse 7 is God saying, I'm going to flood everything. Now, the reason I don't get nervous, because you know he's going to do it again. Not by flood, but when he comes back, his wrath is going to be poured out. And the reason I don't get nervous about the wrath of God, the reason I'm not nervous about verse 7 is because I rejoice that the wrath of God was already poured out on Jesus Christ. So so I don't have to be nervous about the wrath because a believer will never, ever, ever experience God's wrath. And if we do, then God is, he's tapping into something called double jeopardy. He's already poured it out. He ain't pouring it out again on you. Not if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. And so verse 7 is a warning for those that do not trust in Jesus. Because just like he promised to do it in verse 7, he promised later that he's going to do it again. And verse 7, this is grace. That God warned you. Like, God didn't have to warn you. He could have just poured it out on you. But God warns us today that his wrath is going to come. And, you know, in Singapore, if you've ever flown into Singapore, Singapore has, before you get to customs, they have, um, they, they have warning signs everywhere. When you get off the plane, there's warning signs. And the warning signs read like this. It says, warning, drug smugglers will incur the death penalty. Like, I just thought that was a little harsh. Like, not time. You know, you're not getting house arrest. As little as 20 grams of weed will get you the death penalty in Singapore. Like, those warning signs are up today. So, so you, you got to understand, what's crazy is, even though the warning signs are up, you know people still smuggle drugs into Singapore. Now, you might be saying, that's crazy, the warning signs. Why are they ignoring the warning signs? But yet we look at warning signs like verse number 7, and we ignore the fact that God will pour out his wrath. So he will come back. Hell is real. See, we don't preach hell enough. When I was growing up, we got a hell sermon once a month. I'm serious. That's what we need in this church. We want to preach about the love of God, and yes, he is loving. We want to preach about the grace of God, and yes, he is gracious. We want to preach about the mercy of God, and yes, he is merciful, but he's also holy, and his holiness moves him to judge and punish sin. And so when I read this, I'm I'm rejoicing not at his wrath, but I'm rejoicing at the fact that it passes me over. I'm rejoicing at the fact that Jesus Christ came to die so that I wouldn't have to, and no other religion promises that. Every other religion, you got to work. But in Christianity, God worked. He came down to take upon upon him all of your sin and then give you his righteousness. I know you hear it every week, so it's like, ah, Pastor, come on, skip through it. I got to go out of here. We got brunch, you know, planned. I I get it. But listen, the gospel moves me. When I was in school, my my professor, we came into class, and my professor wanted to do this pop quiz on, on the missionary journeys of Paul. I didn't study. In fact, nobody in the class studied except one kid. He was just a show off. And, and I get to class and, and, and the, the professor says, pop quiz, I need you to explain all of Paul's missionary journeys and I need you to do it in sequence and I need the exact dates and the exact locations. And I'm sitting there like, I have no clue where to even start. And, and so as you know, I, I failed the test, but so did everybody else in the class except this one kid. This one kid aced it. He got everything right. And so we come back the next week and the professor wanted to, he wanted to illustrate a point. And he says, listen, I got all the grades back. And when he passed them out, everybody in the class had 100 except this one kid that was the overachiever. 
the overachiever, he gave an average of all of our failing grades. And the one kid that passed actually failed. And he said, this is the gospel. Because in the gospel, you fail. But Jesus Christ got a hundred. And then he gives you the hundred. And he takes your zero. He takes your failure. And so when I read verse 7, I'm not worried. I'm rejoicing. And I'm rejoicing at the fact that verse 7, the future promise of wrath, I'm not worried about because it was already poured out on Christ. And then Christ gives you something great. He gives you his righteousness. Now, verse 8 confused me. Let's get there and then we'll end. Verse 8 confused me. And I don't know if you're confused. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Can I tell you why that confuses me? Because if I read the rest of the story, Noah's not the only one saved. When I read verse 8, it looks like Noah built an ark. He got on it. He's the only one on the ark. But, but Noah's not the only one on the ark. His three sons are on the ark. Shem, Japheth, and Ham are all on the ark. His wife is on the ark. His three sons, their wives on the ark. Okay, so let me count that. That's seven people, including, well, if you include Noah, eight people. Seven other people got saved, but the Bible just said in verse 8 that Noah found favor. Did not say the seven found favor. But the seven received favor because of somebody else. Like, like stick with the gospel here. If you've trusted in Jesus, you receive favor not because you've earned it. You receive favor because Jesus Christ earned it for you. Bible says that Noah found favor. You do know that Jesus finds favor in the eyes of his father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we are getting on Noah's ark without us building, without us finding favor. You're getting on because of somebody else. See, this is the gospel. This is why we preach it every week. Because I realize that if I'm one of the seven, there's no way for me to earn this type of favor. Let me go deeper. Not even Noah earned it. Noah didn't earn this favor. The Bible doesn't say Noah earned the favor. It says Noah found favor, which means Noah was just as deserving of the wrath that was poured out as everybody else. Read chapter 9. Y'all know Noah acts up in chapter 9, right? He, after the water subsides and he plants a vineyard, y'all remember he did a little too much sippy-sippy. He got to the Ciroc, not the pineapple, that's too sweet. He got to some other Ciroc and he just started sipping it. And so when I, look, when I look at Noah, I realize not even Noah is worthy to be on the ark that he built. But he's got, he got favor from God. He found favor from God. If you're like me and was sitting in the parking lot of that church and you're, you're, you're sitting there and you're going, man, I, I can earn this thing. Listen, you can't. You got to find favor with God. When God looks down on you, all he sees is sin. But he's so gracious to reveal his son to you. If you've trusted in Jesus, not because you made a choice. If you trusted in Jesus because God decided to lavish love on you. He decided to give you his righteousness. He decided, like, you didn't make the decision. Why? Because I read that my heart is desperately sick. Sick hearts don't make good decisions. Sick people don't make good decisions. What we need is an external righteousness, which we get in Jesus Christ. See, we read stuff like John 3.16, and, and I'm, not, I'm not knocking it. I love John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God. That's the gospel. Have you ever read verse 36? Okay, verse 36 says, whoever does not obey shall not see, this, uh, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. Listen, 
Verse 7 remains on anybody that has not trusted in Jesus. If you're in here going, you just messed up my Thanksgiving week. You, like, I didn't come here for you to tell me I'm a sinner. No, you need to hear it. You need to hear it week after week because in knowing how far you are, you get to see how close you really are in Jesus. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, that we were all once far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Forsake your righteousness because you're not as good as you think you are. You're not as, you're not as well put together as you think you are. What you need is Jesus. And so here's the problem, sin. Here's the solution, Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, when Jesus talks about this passage later on, I'm not going to preach about it, but Jesus talks about it later on in Matthew chapter 25. I realized when I read Matthew 25 this week that the people that were a part of the flood, like they were unaware that it was going to happen until it was too late. They actually thought they had more time to get it together. And that might be you in here. Maybe you think you have more time than you really do. Maybe you're like, you know what, I've heard this message before. I'm going to give my life to the Lord another time. I'm going to give it later on. But I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will ransom you today. Because if I understand John 3, 36, I understand that the wrath still remains. Here's the other thing. Some of you are going to gather this week with non-believing family members. You're going to sit at the dinner table, Thanksgiving dinner table, with people that don't know Jesus. Maybe people you genuinely love. And for far too long, we've sat at dinner tables with people that don't know Jesus and haven't shared the good news with them. If you really believe that the wrath remains on the one that did not trust in Jesus, why are we not sharing that news? Why are we not telling others about the salvation that you've received? If you're in here and you don't know Jesus, you need to talk to somebody today. Like, don't, don't put it off. Because the people in the text put it off according to Jesus. Don't put it off because you, you need him today. Father, I pray for everybody in this room. We are amazed at your love. We are rocked by your love. The fact that you would come up off of your throne to dwell amongst us, to die for us. And you didn't do it when we got it together. While we were still sinful, you decided that you would die for us. Not that we could bring anything to the table. We bring nothing to the table. We don't complete you in any way. But you're just so gracious and loving. You decided to, to lavish love on some people. Just like the eight were saved because of the ark. I thank you that those that have trusted in you get in your divine ark. Which keeps us safe from the wrath around us. Father, thank you. Help this message to motivate us to live for you, but also help us help this, this message to motivate us to tell others about you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.